Our second reading is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 3. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eteria, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able, to, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, as the axe is laid to the root of the trees, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations he preached good news to the people. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. The very opening scenes of the original Star Wars movie has a vast universe of stars, then there's a rebel spaceship, and then the, the largest imperial cruiser. It's so massive, it just dwarfs your imagination. You're, you're just blown away by how big this evil empire cruiser is attacking the rebel ship. Then it catches up with the rebel ship, and then the stormtroopers board, and eventually, through the smoke and haze of lasers, comes Darth Vader, standing there in all of his power and evil glory, one of the greatest bad guys ever to be created. And he's standing there, and you know this guy is in charge. The very next scene cuts to the desert planet of Tatooine, and a teenage boy and a crazy old wizard who lives amongst the caves. And this is the hope of the universe. And the juxtaposition is just obvious and jarring. The director wants you to see there is power and there is weakness. There is authority and grandeur, and there's a teenage boy and an old wizard. And what are they? Who is in charge? Who has power of the universe? And of course, as the story unfolds, the, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to break some news to you here, okay? The, the old man wizard dies prematurely, it would seem. Then the young teenage boy seems to be gathering strength in the second movie, 
But as he's gathering strength, he meets the bad guy again and is defeated. And the empire seems to have taken back its power and all is lost. But somehow, out of that, in Return of the Jedi, the young teenage boy rises to be a young man who has great power and ultimately defeats Vader and the empire on their own turf. Who has power? Who is in charge? This is the same set of questions that Luke is asking in Luke chapter three. We get in the very couple of first verses, verses one and two of Luke chapter three, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and he goes on and on as Stephen read so well, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Who is in charge? Whose empire is it? Luke is asking. Now, Luke on one level wants us to see, Luke, not Skywalker, the writer of the gospel, wants us to see the historical and global setting of the story of Jesus. He's identifying the political authorities, Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, and the religious authorities, the high priests in Jerusalem. And he's setting Jerusalem and Rome over and against what is about to happen in the region of Galilee and Judea. Luke was a historian, and if you go and read ancient histories like Julius Caesar wrote an ancient history of his own rule and reign, Tacitus wrote about the ancient Roman Empire, Josephus wrote about the first century and some of the years before that, go and read, and they follow the same model that that Luke does. Luke is one of the most um, accurate historians in the New Testament, recording when somebody reigned and where they reigned. It was a prominent way of setting your history in the the context and saying, what I'm about to tell you is true. So on one level, Luke is doing that, but of course on the other level, he's doing that whole narrative arc, because the book of Luke is tied to another book in the New Testament, it's the book of Acts. Luke and Acts are actually one big book, so you can read them straight through. So Luke and Acts has a narrative arc that's asking who is in charge and whose empire is it? And you actually get it from the very first scenes. You guys know the story of Luke chapter two. You know it because you've seen, uh, you've seen Charlie Brown's Christmas. You've also actually played with a nativity set. And the story is like this. Caesar says, everyone go to be taxed. Caesar is the emperor of the entire Roman Empire, right? He's the king of kings, if you would. And he says, you guys go and be taxed. You have to go to the hometown that you were born in that your family name comes from, and you have to pay me money. And everybody in the empire has to obey, including Joseph and Mary, these peasants from far away Galilee in the backwoods edge of the Roman Empire. They have to travel the arduous journey to Bethlehem, where Mary gives birth, not in the setting she was hoping, and has to lay the baby in a manger because there's no room for them in the inn. Peasants, amongst animals, and the first people to hear about it are shepherds, who were considered the lowest and poorest of the peoples in the world. And somehow the story is saying, this is the king, and yet Caesar and Rome seem to be king. 
But if you know anything of the story of Jesus, it plays out that it, he starts as this baby in Bethlehem, but then grows up and starts to have power. And we're gonna be looking at this in the next coming weeks, but he starts preaching and performing miracles, and people begin to follow him. And he goes around with such authority that, that the crowds are saying, oh my goodness, this is where power is really going to be had. This is the one that is gonna overthrow the Romans. But at the end of the book of Luke, again, just to kind of you know, spoil it for you, the political and religious authorities act, and they crucify Jesus, and he's buried. And it seems like they've won. But of course, on the third day, he rises from the dead. And he comes with great power to all of his disciples. He says, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit falls on all of the disciples in Jerusalem on Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit falls on them. And then what happens? Moment by moment, piece by piece, person by person, the gospel begins to spread. The good news about Jesus Christ crucified and risen begins to change people. It begins to overtake them, not by sword, but by spiritual transformation. And the gospel spreads out slowly from Jerusalem to Judea, to Galilee, to Samaria. It's growing kind of like, like a, a mustard seed might grow into a tree or something like that. Till at the end of the book of Acts, what's happening? Paul the apostle is going to the very seat of the Roman Empire, to Rome, to preach the gospel. 400 years later, the Roman Empire doesn't stand. Not in the way that it did, but the gospel does. The church does. Luke is asking, where is power? Where is authority? It may not be where you think it is. His question is this, who is king and what kingdom is really the kingdom? Right from the very beginning here in Luke chapter three, he's, he's specifying it. In verses one and two of Luke three, the powers are Rome and Jerusalem, Caesar and the high priests, and in juxtaposition to that is verse two, the end of verse two, the weak is the word of God coming to John the Baptist, this just random guy, in the wilderness, who's preaching amongst the caves, and people come out to hear him. And what is the message of this wild and crazy prophet amongst the caves and the deserts? His message is one of the hope of Isaiah. We see it in verses four, five, and six of Luke chapter three. He quotes from the Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And verse six, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He's quoting from Isaiah 40, and when a rabbi, an ancient Jew, quoted from a passage of scripture, they were often citing the whole entirety of the scripture. Jesus does this when he quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, hanging on the cross, quoting Psalm 22. Here, John the Baptist is quoting from Isaiah 40, but the, the message of Isaiah 40 is the backdrop of what he's saying here. And if you went to Isaiah chapter 40, which we also had read, verses one and two are the initial message of hope and comfort to God's people. If you were to sum up what's being said here, it's this, God promises healing and peace and forgiveness and blessing for his people. 
And now you need to know a little bit of the history of Israel to understand why this message was important. The history of Israel was that Abraham was called by God to give birth to a chosen nation. But of course, it was hundreds of years later in the book of Exodus when they were redeemed out of Egypt. God calls the people out of Egypt, he saves them, redeems them, and he calls them his own. He establishes a covenant with them and said, you will be my people and I will be your God. But in the ensuing decades and hundreds of years, Israel wandered away from the Lord God. They betrayed and disobeyed the covenant, wandered after false idols, and God gave them over to the desires of their heart and ultimately brought justice and judgment on them, which was seen time and again when they were overrun by foreign powers and sent into exile. And basically from about the seventh century on, Israel did not exist as the nation that they were called to be, but instead existed with a lot of sorrow and suffering and longing. And that's where the prophets spoke. Prophets like Isaiah who said, one day, one day, the Lord will fulfill his covenant for you. He will come, he will judge the enemy nations, and he will bring salvation, vindication for you, his people. That's the hope of Isaiah 40, verses three through five. One day the Lord would return and restore his people. He would bring the mighty down low, raise up the low, and he would arrive, and all flesh would see the salvation of the Lord. By the first century, Israel is sitting in sorrow and suffering and unfulfilled promises, wondering, where is God? When's he gonna show up? And what they were picturing is not clear, but it's probably what they were picturing was that God would come and do something like Rome in Jerusalem, like Caesar, but a Jewish Caesar. That God would come and make his people the capital of the entire world. And then when God would arrive, he would tell everyone, you owe everything to us now. We're in charge. John the Baptist comes along with a message of the Lord, and his message is this. God has come to save and to judge. God is here, but it's not me. It's not me, guys. We see this in verse 16 and 17 of Luke chapter 3, when the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, the one who is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to be his servant. I baptize with water, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God will be on him and powerful through him. Oh, and he's here as judge. So, prepare the way. Prepare the way in your life, for the Lord is here. See, Luke's ultimate question begins with, with John the Baptist's question, which is, are you ready to meet the Lord when he does come? And Luke's question is this, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? The problem as I see it is we don't actually really know Jesus. Most of us live, and if you walked out on the street, everyone will say something about Jesus. But most people aren't really sure what they believe about him, and those who do often are misguided. We have a lot of assumptions about who Jesus is, a lot of misunderstandings, 
Many people claim to believe in Jesus but have never really read the Gospels. And on top of that, we have all of the art and film that has created false visions of Jesus, if you would. For instance, uh, this film, The King of Kings, has Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes. Okay, so Jesus is Jewish, and he's a Middle Eastern Jew, not a European Jew. His hair and eyes don't look like that. Or the pictures of nativity scenes. You get why Ricky Bobby thinks it's sweet baby Jesus? Because the pictures of the nativity scenes are always of a glowing, perfectly clean, shining baby who doesn't cry, is born without needing a diaper. His mom has just given birth and she looks like she's been at the spa all day. And he's radiating light. Now, I know there's theological reasons why it was interpreted that way, but these pictures, when they come again and again and they paint a portrait of what Jesus is, they shape our thoughts about him. Blonde Jesus, radiant baby Jesus. And then there's, of course, those, those Renaissance paintings of Jesus sort of esoterically looking out with a glowing halo. Again, they can be really powerful and useful at times, but they can also misshape our understanding of who Jesus is. Because the more esoteric Jesus is, the more distant he feels, the less human he seems. Like when you add the British accent that every movie seems to do. I mean, Jesus spoke Aramaic, Hebrew, and maybe some Greek. There's no British accent in that. But for some reason, any portrayal of Jesus has a a good English accent. If he had an English accent, it wouldn't have been a proper English accent. It would have been a terrible one. It would have been a Cockney accent, something very local right? But no, no, it's always the proper English accent that we give him. When he's esoteric, speaking with an English accent, portrayed in these glowing baby pictures with blonde hair and blue eyes, we end up being detached from Jesus. And the more detached you are from Jesus, the more likely you are to fill in the gaps yourself, making up about him whatever you want. A century ago, and continuing to this day, the liberal church has rejected the divinity, resurrection of Jesus. And anything he said that might disagree with what they believe. Jesus said there's only one way, can't be true. As a result, they've stripped Jesus of his authority over beliefs and morality and salvation. The conservative church believes Jesus is Lord and Savior, but has co-opted his authority, baptizing their politics and biases and self-righteous hypocrisy, saying, well, this is what I already believe, therefore Jesus must too. And then there's the reality of just many of us who are just trying. Many of us claim to be Christians and we want to know him, but we don't really know Jesus. John Eldridge in his book, Beautiful Outlaw, wrote this, millions of people have spent years attending church and yet they don't know God. Their heads are filled with stuff about Jesus, but they do not experience him. There are millions more who love Jesus Christ, but experience him only occasionally. 
because we don't really know Jesus. What is the evidence that we don't really know Jesus? Well, one evidence that we don't really know Jesus is how we view and treat others. Is our approach to others motivated by fear or a sense of superiority ever? What is your view of other races and the problems that they're dealing with? Well, as long as I don't have to deal with them, that's their problems. What is your view of other religions? You driven by fear and very hopeful to eliminate them? What is your view of the immigrant? Well, they're not one of us. It's an economic problem. Laws are laws. What is your view of people with whom you disagree? Condescension? Disdain? How do you view and treat others? How do you view and treat your spouse? Have you ever done or said anything to your spouse or behind their back that you would never do or say if Jesus were present? Evidence we don't really know Jesus, how we view and treat others, and how we view ourselves. Are we constantly concerned with my needs, my rights, my desires, my demands, what I deserve? Who has a say on how you live? Who has a say on your career, your relationships, what you do with your body, your money, your time? Who defines good versus evil for you? How do you know what's right and true? Let's go ahead and hit on two hot-button issues that the church is always accused of talking about, sexuality and money. In the Old Testament, the law is laid out, do not commit adultery, right? The Ten Commandments. Sex outside of the confines of marriage between a man and a woman is outside of God's bounds. Jesus comes along and says, "Ah, that's so stuffy, I don't care what you do with your bodies. No, Jesus is the one who said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. That's right. But I'm taking it a step further and saying, don't even look at a woman lustfully. It's not just your actions, it's the desires of your heart. It's what you do with your eyes and your mouth. Everything matters to God because you matter to God. Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You were Your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus died for you. You belong to him if your faith is in him. And then there's our money. If you have not been from the traditions that do this, the the church has held for years that you're supposed to give a 10% of your money away in generosity. It's called a tithe. It comes from an Old Testament law that says a tithe is one-tenth of your income and you're supposed to give it away. New Testament and Old Testament scholars have debunked that a little bit because they said if you actually took all of the the sacrifices and offerings that were required, you should probably give more like 20 to 25% of your money away to fulfill the Old Testament. Jesus comes along and he says, hey, enough of that 10% thing. Great, good, 10% was kind of high. He says, no, 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 I want everything. Go and sell everything, give it to the poor, and then you can come follow me. 
And maybe that was particular to that guy who had a particular idol and, and issue there. But Jesus' claim is the same as Paul's claim, which is generosity means everything belongs to the Lord, and if generosity isn't costly, it's not generosity. So we shouldn't look back on the past year and say, I gave hundreds. We should probably be looking back and say, I gave tens of thousands, but I can't even keep track. The evidence we don't really know Jesus is we are still in control. We are defining him and not the other way around. Do you want Jesus? John the Baptist says, you can have him, you just need to repent. Repent is a very religious term. Another way of talking about it would be surrender, give up. Stop being in control. The Baptist says in verse eight, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and don't say we have Abraham as our father. You see, in the first century, the Jewish people would have looked back on the fact that they were Jewish and had Abraham as their ancestor as their reason for feeling confident standing before God. In comparison to the rest of the world, I am a child of Abraham, therefore, when push comes to shove on the last day when there is a judgment, I know I'm in because I have Abraham as my father. John the Baptist said, don't go around claiming Abraham as your father. God can turn rocks into children of Abraham. Repent and believe. It was just a way of self-justifying based on externals. We do the same thing today. We don't cite Abraham as our father. We don't really cite our ancestors. Instead, some of the things we do today that are akin to that are we redefine good on our own terms. Here's the highest good, to be tolerant and accepting, and if I'm tolerant and accepting, I should be okay. Or we define the highest good as being responsible and hardworking. I do what I'm supposed to do, I take care of business, I take care of my family, I pay my bills. Therefore, when push comes to shove, I know I'm probably in. We're constantly comparing ourselves, tallying up our volunteerism, how nice we are, how much we give, and so long as there's people that are worse than us, we feel like, okay, when push comes to shove, I'll be good. We all try to justify ourselves in some way. How do you? The problem with Jesus is this. He doesn't allow us to justify ourselves because he pushes us. He calls us to the sort of love of everyone that none of us can live up to, to compassion and generosity and forgiveness and humility, and that gets hard. And ultimately, he demands everything of us, drop all and follow me. That's all I want. Jesus, as you read through the stories of Jesus, is constantly confronting people and us with who or what has authority in your life. Either Jesus is Lord of your life, completely and totally, or you are. It can't be both. Jesus is not a divine yes man, approving what you already believe and do. He's Lord, 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 and Savior and Judge, not a personal assistant. Now look, don't go looking for Jesus 
if you want to keep control of your life. Don't claim to believe in Jesus if you're not willing to be changed and challenged by him. Jesus is asking, who is king, you or me? But there's also good news in this because in Christianity, in the gospel, in what Jesus brings, your ancestry and your religiousness don't matter. It's not the good are in and the bad are out. It's the humble are in and the proud are out. The good and capable and self-sufficient, that's basically everyone in Northern Virginia, are the ones who meet Jesus and reject him. Meanwhile, the failures, the needy, and those willing to be dependent are the ones who find him. What will you do with Jesus? I've been a Christian pretty much my whole life since I was a little kid. But about six, seven, eight years ago, I re-met Jesus. I took a season to read through the Gospel of Luke and I fell in love with Jesus again. Now, I had grown up very churchy kid. I was the sort of kid that as a teenager in college, I might have annoyed you because I was so churchy and religious. And then I went off to seminary and got theology, so I had a lot of head knowledge. I could kind of explain the Bible to you backwards and forwards, explain the divinity of Jesus. And then I worked in a church and was practicing this stuff. And about seven or eight years ago, I just read the Gospel of Luke and sat in that in my prayer time and realized Jesus is actually pretty cool. You should get to know him too. I became a fan of his in a way that I don't think I was before and began to realize that the only thing that matters is Jesus. And in that process of re-experiencing him, I found him challenging my politics, my spending, my relationships, the trajectory of my life, my attempts at self-justification, and all of my self-righteousness. Oh, it's all still there, but I recognize his place in pushing on it. I want him to be Lord and not me. But the good thing about Jesus is he constantly drives away fear, that anxiety that if I'm not in control and I don't know what's happening next, I'm gonna lose it. You know what? Jesus is Lord. Doesn't matter what happens politically, doesn't matter what happens globally, doesn't even matter what happens with your body and your life, we're all gonna die, Jesus is Lord, amen. Jesus is my assurance and hope. It's what I care about most. We're gonna be in the Gospel of Luke from now until Easter. It's a long time. Then we're gonna be in Acts after that. So I'm gonna encourage you this fall to read through the Gospels with us. To maybe pick up a book about Jesus, maybe participate in a small group that's looking at who Jesus is, and pray in your heart with humility and a willingness to be challenged and changed by Jesus, saying, Jesus, reveal yourself. I want to experience you. And then seek him earnestly, maybe for the first time in your life, or maybe you've been following him for 20 years and you need to just do it again. Are you fed up with religion, trying to be good, trying to figure it all out, 
trying to just manage everything, if you want to experience life to the full, you actually need to know God. And if you want to know God, you need to experience Jesus to the full. John Eldridge in Beautiful Outlaw wrote this, Jesus came to reveal God to us. He is the defining word on God, on what the heart of God is truly like, on what God is up to in the world and in your life. An intimate encounter with Jesus is the most transforming experience of human existence. To know Jesus as he is, is to come home. To have his life, joy, love, and presence cannot be compared. A true knowledge of Jesus is our greatest need and our greatest happiness. To be mistaken about him is the saddest mistake of all. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you as people who want life to the full. We live with so much pressure, so many things pulling on us, so much of a desire to be in control and to be lords of our own life. Give us eyes to see you as our Savior and our Lord and our friend. May we meet you again or for the first time. Amen.